Hi, this is Steve Harkadon, and I'm with Audrey Waters, and it is the 10th of March, 2012, and we're looking at the week in EdTech. Hi, Audrey. Good morning. We're recovering from our week in EdTech, or I am, at least. (laughs) Or maybe (laughs) our last two weeks in EdTech. Yes, it's a blur. Where where you and I actually spent a fair amount of time together physically, which was interesting. Well, not not the last few days. I mean, we were in the same location, but we didn't see much of each other. Yes, but still fun to be around, Audrey. <laughs> um, <laughs> you have quite a cult following, I think. Do I? Is it a cult following? That's funny. <laughs> it's a cult following. Hey, uh, two big conferences uh, and then some really interesting interviews and a lot to talk about. Um, both the Digital Media and Learning Conference and South by Southwest, where we both were, had their own kind of unique um, stories or dramas. For me, it feels like there was a, a moment or a, a very noticeable shift um, in the larger story of educational technology as a, a part of education reform and the role of large organizations. And I, um, hopefully we'll have some fun talking about that. Um, felt a little bit to me like the revolution is over. Yeah, or or certainly the revolution that many of us have been agitating for has been co-opted, and and suddenly it's sort of not our revolution. Well, the the interesting moment for me was let's go to the digital media and learning. Uh, was actually hearing that in John C. Lee Brown, which I didn't expect. Now I really love John C. Lee Brown. He's been on my show a few times. Um, really looked forward to that talk but there was a moment in his talk where he talked about scaling Montessori and Dewey Mm -hmm. that I think was kind of the moment I began to drift Um, should we be trying to scale essentially highly personalized human education I think you know I, I think a lot about this question of scaling partially because I think in the technology world um, when we when companies talk about scaling um, and getting larger, they're really talking about scaling infrastructure. So you know this is adding more, adding more computers so that you can sort of make things, uh, you know, crunch more data or make things more responsive. And I think that I'm more interested in the ways in which technology can help scale um, relationships horizontally and connect people, but I'm not sure if scaling doesn't always feel like the right, the right word uh, for, for what I think needs to happen in terms of sort of building, uh, building connections between people with, by using technology. I love that you just encapsulated a, a, a point that I think is maybe going to become a part of our theme today. Social technologies are highly social. And that's the interesting piece for me. And I actually think this is coming out in your interviews on uh, the, the Scratch for HTML5 project. Yes. So lovely. I'm gonna, uh, this will be interesting. Okay, so digital media learning um, was also largely about badges. And um, I felt that, that in many ways this was a very successful part of the digital media learning for me was the degree to which there felt like uh, there was real authentic dialogue around badges and not just sort of a blanket acceptance. I thought so too. And I thought that it was, you know, 
it was very interesting that it was that the the subject of badges, right? This new sort of um, um, potential for um, an alternative form of recognition, or if you want, to, I don't know if it's quite certification, but an alternative form of recognition. That this is something that had been officially sanctioned by the organizers, right? The the MacArthur Foundation, Haystack, and uh, Mozilla are all all in on badges and on the bat on the research competition this year. But it felt like most of the people, most of the attendees I talked to were pretty skeptical and were really willing to um, to offer quite a lot of quite nuanced and smart reasons why that was. And so I thought I thought that was you know, and people I would say too, people who were sort of genuinely recognizing that um, you know, that there are that there are issues that we need to tackle around um, thinking about uh, what ca- what counts, what's recognized in in informal learning circles, but I'm not sure that I'm not sure that many folks were sort of sold on badges. I was actually really glad to see that. Um, I, I have this image in my mind. Uh, we used to read our kids a children's book called "You Are Special," and it's the story of these wooden figures who are wandering around this land and. People are putting stars or dots on them based on whether they do well or they do poorly. And uh, this poor Wemmick boy meets this girl, Lucia, and dots and stars both fall off of her. And she's sort of become my mental image for the sort of the pushback on badges. It's hard to see intrinsic motivation growing well and sort of authentic representation growing well in a complex badging system. And I felt like people were were really questioning that as well. I think so too. But I mean, I, you know, my push my my pushback on that would be we, um, you know, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of extrinsic motivations right now. And I'm not saying sort of trade one extrinsic motivator for for um, for another. But I think it is important to to perhaps also think critically about what it you know why 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 people do need certain, uh, why people do need recognition for what they do in order for, uh, to find employment, uh, you know, and so on. I mean, I think that there are lots of places in which we need to sort of have conversations about what, um, uh, you know, why, why, why we learn and who, who does it matter to? Does it matter just to the learner or does it matter to the employer? Does it matter to the institution? And, and, and how much of that, how much, how much will bad will badges change um, the institution? I'm thinking of all the interviews I did with the open source folks when I started my interview series five or six years ago. Um, and Eric Raymond and Brian Bellendorf, Richard Stallman is in his own category anyway. But um, you know, um, Mark Andreessen, would they have benefited from badging in any way? And I'm just not seeing it. No, I, um, but I think that um, I think that there probably are there are there are ways that we need to do a better job. Particular, I mean, again, you know, particularly now, thanks to um, the way in which learning can change due to uh, you know due to the web, that there that maybe we do need to see about ways to to recognize that. But that but that being said, you know, I I too am sort of pretty nervous about forcing folks down a particular learning path instead of sort of really allowing them to have more exploratory 
opportunities. Sort of once you've once you've given badge A, then someone feels you know obligated to do badge A one, then badge A two. Well, for what it's worth, it felt like a very thoughtful conversation. Uh, I was glad to see the. Um, the pushback, and actually glad to see those who were involved in the different organizations kind of open to that feedback. Yeah, I thought um, that Henry, Henry Jenkins wrote a really fabulous, fabulous piece, and I've talked to a couple of people um, from Mozilla over the last few days, and I think, um, I think they're uh, deeply humbled, and I think, they're, they are in, I think they are sort of listening. Yeah, uh, in many ways, this process is representing kind of the best of how the web kind of works horizontally and and um, and how an idea that you know probably five or ten years ago just would have seen momentum um, is getting pushed back because of the, of the voice in a very positive way yeah. in the same way that you know lots of these web technologies kind of get reinvented by their users what's the connected learning initiative so this was this was a, a new initiative that um, was announced at um, at the at DML, that's that's um, Mimi Ito, uh, several other um, MacArthur Foundation, several other folks are sort of backing. It's this night idea of helping to sort of, I would say, on one hand, make a more think more holistically about the way in which um, learners learn. Sort of, they learn in informal settings. They have their own interests. Often, those interests are in driven into informal online learning now there's no sort of there's no recognition in the in the formal setting necessarily of what students real passions and and skills are and so i think it's a way of 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 thinking more holistically about the the student or the learner um, and i think it, but it's also sort of tapping into broader uh a broader connection between researchers and schools and uh and some of these philanthropic organizations too. Will any of this make a difference if the classroom doesn't shift in terms of, of providing students with an opportunity to really pursue what they're interested in? Can this be done at, a, at this sort of large organizational level? I think this is this is one of the things that um, that I heard some pushback on too, because it felt very much, uh, you know, it felt very much that. MacArthur, the MacArthur Foundation had sort of said, um, uh, had said sort of, we don't see schools as an interesting or possible place for change, and so our our efforts are going to go elsewhere. I don't, th- I mean, they didn't phrase it like that, but it felt as though MacArthur Foundation's efforts are in after-school programs, in libraries, in some of the non-classroom settings, um, which to me leaves the classroom to be influenced by other organizations that I don't think have necessarily share that same sort of vision for um, inform for empowering the informal learner um, like the Gates Foundation I think being being one of them okay so uh, there was also a um, big moment when uh, representatives of the Gates Foundation um, MacArthur Foundation and uh, Mitch Kapoor, re- representing Mitch Kapoor, <laughs> were, were on a panel uh, that Betsy Corcoran moderated on investing in educational technology. Um, that felt to me like a big moment as well for our community. Why was that an important 
event? Well, you know, I thought that you know sometimes, particularly when you put when you when you assemble a panel, I think sometimes you almost predetermine the outcome of what's going to be said by choosing people who are quote sort of representative of um, a particular stance. And I thought that one of the things that interested me was that that um, so you had uh, Connie Yal from MacArthur, uh, Mitch Kapoor as the venture capitalist. Um, Corinna Wang from the Gates Foundation and Betsy Corcoran as a as a technology uh, journalist, and it was actually a much more nuanced and complicated conversation than just phil- you know philanthropy good, private investment bad. Um, so, and I mean partially because I think you know Mitch, Mitch is uh, Mitch doesn't represent I think venture capital. Um, all venture capitalists, but I thought it was a really interesting, uh, interesting, uh, and sort of more nuanced way of thinking about how do we fund how do we fund innovation than just uh, you know that the that the philanthropic organizations, the nonprofits, are necessarily sort of in the service of um, uh, in the sort of service of substantive radical change. Well, and you and Bud Hunt and Doug Belshaw and I spent some time, in, and I left and you spent even more time talking about that particular day and sort of the themes of that day. I, I left with this really definite sense of a uh, a line in between kind of the large organization, whether commercial or philanthropic, and the more sort of entrepreneurial world that I think is coming and how we prepare students for that. Who, who else had interesting things to say about that day or the or ML before we leave that conference? Um, actually, I actually decided to do a Storify on my blog for precisely to try to gather up some of these interesting posts and interesting tweets. It's one of the things I find is I take a lot of notes and then if I don't do anything with them, they just sort of disappear into Evernote forever. And actually, you know, tw- the Twitter... Twitter search is remarkably poor for actually going back and being able to sort of find what people tweeted. Um, and I, so I've, I've collected that into a story. I thought Chad, uh, Chad Sansing wrote a really good piece about being sort of the, the teacher underground. Uh, he, he talked about being a person that, I mean, in the responding, I think in some ways to this notion that, well, let's, let's give up on the classroom. Uh, I thought he pushed back. Um, he pushed back really well on that idea. Oh, good. Well, I'm sure we'll come back to some of these themes. Um, the first interview where you felt like uh, it seemed it really made a huge help to change your thinking a lot about the Scratch HTML5 project was with John uh, Udell. Yeah. Udell. Udell. Yeah. Say his last name. For Udell. Us. Udell. Okay. So, uh, in fact, you say that this completely reframed the whole research endeavor for you. Why was that? Um. Well, for one thing, you know, I think John's been thinking about this subject for a very long time, um, and uh, you know, he, I think he felt as though Mozilla just wasn't even asking sort of the right questions. Uh, he and you know, he although the notion the notion of web literacy, he felt is definitely the right the right problem to be solving. Making a making a tool to help people become programmers is really sort of um, he's a quarter farther up the stack that it was really not not the most 
immediate and important thing that people needed to learn how to do. And so he's much more interested in helping people understand some of the, the components of the web, the processes um, that they that people already use in their lives and understand how to sort of tag information, retrieve information, and connect, sort of connect the, the services that are already the services and the, and the sort of standards that are already available to one another, um, and, and it was a very different—it's a very different way of thinking. What what matters in terms of web literacy? Then, do you know HTML? Right. So this is sort of: Do you know how to tag all of your photos in Flickr? Do you know what's at stake when you use Flickr? Um, then do you know how to sort of? Can you find ways to sort of, because you've tagged everything thoroughly, pull? just a set of photos into your own website, that sort of thing. Well, so is that any different than the language we hear around becoming uh, web literate or even um, Howard Rheingold's um, crap detection? I mean, uh, that sort of brings it into the arena of being a sort of informed, thoughtful user of the web. Um, is it more nuanced than that? I think that that's definitely part of it, and I think that, you know, I think that that uh, that we really do. I mean, I think one of the things I realize is that we, you know, we really do have such a long way to go in terms in terms of of literacy of the of sort of web literacy and web illiteracy. That that it, and it's that we really have to sort of step back from sort of starting the conversation with folks who are already who sort of who are interested in building a web app and really um, take a step back to some of the some of the underlying components like what you know what is XML uh, what is an RSS feed how does this work how, what is it why does it matter when you put um, when you have structured data versus unstructured data um, instead of sort of charging forward with helping people learn helping people learn JavaScript for example so I don't want to make too big a deal of a potential connection here, but I actually saw a parallel between kind of the MacArthur, um, Gates, Mitch Kapoor model of looking for something and thinking about how to scale it and, and provide it um, uh, uh, to more people and the idea of the scratch for HTML5 as a solution rather than process building. And what I heard in the interview with John uh, <laughs> Udell and um, and actually in the interview as well with uh, Harry Shaw and, mm -hmm. and Mark Guzdial. Mm -hmm. Guzdial? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I'm having a bad name day. <laughs> I, I heard this um, sort of underlying theme of Maybe we're not really talking about the scaling of a solution or a, uh, a um, product, but more kind of understanding the processes that are taking place and somehow providing support for them. I think that that's a really important, I mean, I think that that's one of the key things that I found talking with almost everyone um, in, in the research I've done with Mozilla is, you know, is this an, you know, is this an engineering problem, right? Do we need a new tool? Or is this an education problem? And do you need a tool to solve an education problem? Or do you need, you know, educators and mentors and your peers to help you solve an education problem? Uh, and so 
I think this question of do we build a tool, do we scale a tool, um, or do we help scale people and relationships and, and the practices around supporting relationships, um, I think that that's one of the tensions that I've heard repeatedly in the folks that I've um, and I've, that I've spoke to, but also I think, again, being at these at these two back-to-back -back ed tech conferences, that's something that's come up, a theme that's come up sort of again and again and again. Like the tool, the, the fixation so, with t the tool is something that, um, you know, we, we, I mean, I think that that's something that ed tech has suffered from for a long, long time. Just get a tool, plop the tool in the classroom, and magically it's all, it's all sweetness and light. This feels very brilliant to me. I mean, I think this goes back to sort of John C. Brown asking the question about, um, you know, how do we scale Montessori and Dewey? And maybe the answer is that you don't. But I'm taking some liberties here. But you scale the opportunities to be to create supportive platforms and social platforms for that human learning. Are we getting anywhere thoughtful here? I think. So. I mean, I think so. And I think that that you know, I mean, and to bring it back to the to the investment piece too, um, it's actually the way in which investment, and I would say both investment. Uh, from the private, from the from the for-profit, and from the not-for-profit sector, um, that that's a that's a different sort of thing for them to fund. Uh, funding a tool, um, funding a tool sort of is is easier. Funding support networks is is a lot is a lot sort of looser of a concept. I'm actually gonna go out on a limb and say, I don't think they're going to be able to fund those right. things. I think they think they live in a world of vertical measures mm -hmm. and, and they live in that world because those measures travel easily up and down the vertical. You can describe that success to the board or to the investors. And I think in this more sort of horizontal vision, it's really hard to say, oh, we've measured this and it's okay. Now, I heard this in the sort of intriguing discussion about uh, the the, the New York teachers' um, evaluations being made public. Um, because teachers were then all of a sudden in a position where they were, much like the students, they were being uh, weighed, measured, and found wanting by measures that were really not full measures of what was taking place and the recognition that, in fact, this whole system um, of, of measures that travel the vertical really easily aren't fully representative of the horizontal and education is very horizontal. Right. I mean, and, and, you know, and thinking about sort of, is this a moment when, when more teachers, and I would say, you know, more, more educators, I mean, not just classroom teachers, but because of, of course that, that New York city data was just math teachers and uh, language arts teachers. So, you know, when is it that the sort of the science teachers and the principals and the librarians also, um, push back on the measurements of their of their peers, and, and is this you know is this a, is this the moment where um, that this truly awful you know awful release of of, of names and sort of misinformation um, goes public and it sort of has us um, you know we could have the, sort of the difficult conversations about about measurement. I think the hard. Um, dots that connect for a lot of teachers are that this is in fact the same world that students live in. This, this sort of outward, transparent 
measurements, teachers will feel like, oh, we do a really good job of using those measurements appropriately for students. But I think for me, sort of the deeper story is, you know, in fact, the moment you depend and rely on those measurements, you're creating an imperfect picture that often carries with the student for years and years and years or for their life. Right. Uh, in the same way that these teachers are complaining about. And I think those are hard dots for teachers to connect. I, I think that's actually a really interesting observation. And I wonder, you know, this sort of ties back too into some of the people that would complain and say that, you know, the, the teachers unions who've, who've, you know, fought, fought the release, fought the release of this, of this data have, have not been framing this in terms of, um, the students, uh, they've been framing it in terms of sort of uh, teacher, uh, the teachers. And so I think that so much of this conversation um, right now, because of some of these different ed reform pushes, is becoming, is, is sort of looking at one particular pocket, looking at, looking at the way in which sort of these things impact teachers, instead of looking across the board at how this impacts this whole system um, in both formal and informal settings. I'm, I'm loving the direction this conversation is going. Okay, it felt to me that Harry Shaw actually added something more to this as well, right? Because he said, kids don't want to learn a technology. They want to do projects, and the technology comes because of that. Maybe I'm not saying that as clearly as he did, but gosh, I really liked that. Yeah, this was this was interesting. I had actually spoken to him earlier this year, and he's um, he's a computer engineer. He worked at eBay as a as a data anal analyst for a number of years, and um, is now sort of taking it upon himself to help build community after school computer science programs um, with a background, uh, you know, with a with a real deep um, background in technology. And it's, I think he's sort of having these interesting learning moments himself where he's sort of finding the things that might have interest, interested him as a computer scientist are not necessarily what motivates kids at all. And so it's not about, and I think it's, you know, and he recognizes too, sort of, it's not about teaching kids X, Y, or Z um, programming language because you know, even if they're high school students, by the time they're ready to enter the workforce, that programming language may or may not be um, used by folks. The more important thing is to sort of teach deep conceptual understanding. And the way to teach the deep conceptual understanding of computer science is through, you know, you know asking kids sort of what do you want to build and then the, the steps that get them there. Again, I was intrigued with the parallels here. Um, in the same way that we uh, learn about a period of history, love the kind of dynamic of what was taking place and what it teaches us about, us about our humanity, and then we try and package that and give it to students as memorized names and dates. It sort of parallels the, oh, we're seeing this take place in a tech, so let's package this up and then scale it. Yes. And, and here, Harry saying, okay, <laughs> you can't just take the fact that you know, using computers in the web is valuable and just package it up. Kids have to have a motivation. There has to be a reason for doing what they do. That was sort of deeply parallel for me across the same conversation. Right. I mean, and I, I think that that's, you know, I mean, I think it's a real, I think it's a, um, an important, an important challenge to recognize too. Like if, if, you know, if the, if the web, if the web is important, if, protecting the open web, which is one of Mozilla's missions, right? Um, and yet kids, it's sort of 
um, it's very difficult to sort of sell kids, uh, especially non necessarily non web savvy kids, on the importance of that mission. You have to you, to get them to get them to recognize the importance of the mission. Isn't selling them on the mission. It's actually um, building projects with them that involve uh, that make their their own personal lives more interesting, um, more exciting uh, with the web. It's not sort of the web is important. Let's be web literate. Right. The web is important, so we've packaged up the 12 things you need to know about the web, and now we're going to feed them to you in a way that would not be natural. Right. So Mark Guzdial, Guzdial? Guzdial. Guzdial. So Mark Guzdial goes into this with you, right? Actualistic learning, legitimate peripheral participation, how people move to the center of a community of practice. And I think he's asking, does Scratch for HTML5 do that? Right. This was a this was a great conversation. This um, and I've wanted to talk to him for a long time since um, he's a he's a professor of computer science education, working with primarily his um, his undergrads at Georgia Tech aren't CS majors, and so he spent a lot of time again thinking about um, how do you get um, uh, how do you get sort of non non techies to be technical. And then I thought the I thought the example of his the research that his student did with um, graphic designers who taught themselves to program was really interesting because it's a recognition that 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 the sort of that there does need to be sort of a, a way to help support DIY learning so that people actually have a, a, a more thorough and better understanding. Um, I thought that that was that that was really interesting, but yeah, I think Mark too is sort of saying this this the um, thinking about thinking about building a tool that's not the real tool is actually quite disempowering for learners. And I'm hoping I understood Mark correctly, but I also thought that that he came in on this piece of, of uh, social social process facilitation by discussing how a certain tools, we'll hypertalk, uh, which were really useful to the user, sort of a simplified programming tool, actually stopped getting supported because the wrong community had voice in what was taking place. And that it's really hard to build community around a simplified tool. Yes. But that would seem to be maybe a part of the answer. Well, and I think that hypercard I mean I wanted to say now it's like that's it I'm going to call my project instead of saying scratch for html5 I'm going to call it hypercard for html5 um, because I thought that this was a really interesting this was a really interesting part of our conversation um, but I would say we actually the the reasons why apple abandoned hypercard um, and the community the the um, the sort of the the software engineering community disliked hypercard um, were precisely this thing. There was not actually a community of non-experts who were willing to make a strong argument for why HyperCard mattered to them. I do think today, thanks to the web, we do have com communities of practice that aren't that that are interested in becoming um, web literate, tech literate, um, that aren't interested in necessarily becoming software engineers. So I do think we have the community in place now. In ways that we that we didn't in in the eighties. Since I'm not an Apple guy, is HyperTalk the coding language for HyperCard? Yeah. How are the two yeah. related? Yeah. Okay. Well, this reminded me a lot of 
um, I don't know if you remember Paradox, the relational database programming mm-hmm. yeah. uh, language, but but it, um, you know, Paradox sort of disappeared, and a good relational database for users kind of disappeared. I mean, it, you know, uh, Microsoft Access being sort of the lone survivor in this realm, and I wonder if that was the same issue. I mean, I know there were lots of us who were using relational databases in sort of very rich ways, and we're all looking at each other now saying, well, why don't we have a good tool like that now? You know, what happened? Was it because we were sort of the the low-level hackers and not the high-level programmers, and that that voice couldn't really be heard? I mean, I think that, that, I think that that's precisely it. And to go back to, you know, to go back to the talk with uh, John Adele, like, I mean, I think that he... What he's arguing is that there are these sorts of practices that all of us use in our day-to-day lives that if we had a better, if we could build um, a better understanding and better support around our engagement with those practices, right? So understanding how iCal, um, right, the, the sort of the standard for the way in which calendar data works on the web, then I think it's again building out, it's a building out the, the support for the non-experts who are there, who are very, whose worlds are very much dictated by, um, remain dictated by the software engineers and what they decide is useful or not useful. So for me, I kept coming back to this thought that in a world of increased agency, of recognizing the need for there to be desire in order to, to have the learning take place, I kept coming back to this idea of the real solution not being a tool, but building a platform for the social connecting. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've, that to me is, um, and thinking about you know, Mozilla has does have Hive, which is, uh, which was a um, an organization in New York that brought together teens and techies and mentors to do these sort of hands-on, face-to-face. Um, projects and so how you know is there are there ways in which we can help bring models like that into our own communities and then connect you know through the web connect learners um, you know connect learners uh, together as well (laughs) I feel like my brain's exploding (laughs) you know hive being the Montessori classroom, yes, right, exactly, and uh, and and is there this human tendency to want to come in and package and scale that that uh, leads us often down paths or directions which may or may not be helpful, um, and certainly, you know, I've seen this uh, in my own life. We have a daughter who spent six months doing humanitarian work in Nepal this past year, and this led me to look at humanitarian organizations that often do the same thing. You know, what does a village need? Well, we'll bring it in and we'll provide it. This is an old story. Yeah. You know, many people tell it. And then five years later, why aren't they using those toilets? Well, it wasn't really a project they created and, and wanted to do on their own. It feels like there's a deeper human story here that we're learning that the social technologies have helped us to see, which is that we want to be, we want agency. We want to learn things. We want to figure things out. And... um we're trying to map that against a scaling model, and finding that it's a that the the stories don't fully fit. 
so now this feels like a great bright moment of beginning to have that understanding and now being able to have conversations that really map around it. Yeah. Um, Mark said something else that was really interesting. He talked about the massive online courses and who's actually taking those courses. Do, do you think he's right? Uh, I it- think he's right. But based on my experiences talking to people who took who took both the Stanford classes last term and I'm currently doing the Udacity Introduction to CS class. And um, from what I could tell in the artificial intelligence and in the machine learning class, that you know, 200, you know, 200,000 people signed up for the artificial learning class, um, but the people who succeeded were already people who work in the field. So the, the people... Well, that you're taking the class is maybe kind of an indication of that. Well, I mean... I, right? I, I mean, it's, yeah. you're, not a, you're not a full-on beginner. Right. I mean, I, I am when it comes to the, the, the current class right now. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know any Python. Um, but, and a lot of the people in the introductory class that I'm taking right now already are Python software developers um, is actually what they do for a living. And so, you know, this, it's, you know, really who's, who's being taught or is this, you know, thinking about badges again, is this just a way in which um, where where people are thinking more about the certification that's going that's going to come at the end if you can get a piece of paper that says, you know, uh, you did well in the Stanford AI class. Hmm. That's 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 fascinating. I hadn't thought of that side of it. I was thinking more that maybe we were seeing a little bit of a bubble that the interest level was from people who were educators and interested in thinking about education rather than true beginner which I did kind of I guess I guess I was looking for the I saw the answer I was looking for mm-hmm. which was can a beginner really learn well the language around these courses continues to to produce a smile for me deep learning right, right. as though this massive scaling somehow inherently brings deeper learning well I guess I'm not saying that you can have deep learning, but I'm not sure that I would say that this massive scale makes it deeper learning than you'd have in a small classroom. Well, and the other, the other, the other thing that I um, question is sort of the, one of the things that was anyone who works hard enough will succeed in this class, and um, <laughs> you know what? What does that even mean? Too, I think you know, and what support networks are there for people who, who? get stuck and get frustrated. I went to the, you know, to the forums for one of these classes and, you know, you definitely, I definitely had the sense that, um, that not everyone was, was necessarily supportive of actually like the beginner questions. Right. Well, it was a good perspective for me and, uh, on, on the, um, story of these larger classes. Um, so I don't know if this is a, a good segue or a bad segue, but Ed Moto actually makes the move toward uh, their social network kind of becoming a platform. And <laughs> same language, same words. Is this a positive? Um, you know, I know a lot of teachers who use Ed Moto and they, and they seem to really like it. It's one of those interesting tools that um, Ed Moto looks a lot like Facebook and I think partic- I think that there's 
um, I don't know, there seems to be students, students seem to gravitate towards it. I think the announcement from Edmodo is great news for um, web developers of edtech tools that can now tap into this massive sort of user base uh, of, of, of classrooms that have, that have Edmodo. I couldn't tell if I was really interested or if I was interested in the way that you're interested in a car crash, <laughs> meaning uh, you know, I, I started to read and then I wanted to stop being the story of Edmodo and I, I felt these conflicting emotions within myself. There's this complexity of the marketing piece that really drives me away at the same time that was sort of this brilliance of the platform concept. and. In the end, I just wondered, is this just market share? I mean, is the story here really just the fact that Edmodo has this enormous market share? Or is there something more valuable about this kind of a platform as an ecosystem for developers? I think it's, I mean, I think it's, I think it's both. Uh, I mean, I think that uh, one of the things that, you know, that gives me pause about Edmodo and is the fact that I think Edmodo is really, um, it's, so it's a social it's a social networking tool for your classroom, which is it's really predicated, I think, on on the on the notion that that school has its own separate social network, right? So that schools can't use the social network that the rest of the world uses. I mean, to go back to our sort of do you build a do you, do you build a do you build a tool a separate tool to help learners learn to, to build for the web, or do you build the, the real thing? Right and and in in schools because of because of filtering, students aren't allowed to use the real thing. So there's a not real thing, or there's a, a quote safe social network for schools um, that's Edmodo. And for me, me, I'm more interested in sort of pushing back on some of the reasons why we filter social networks. Anyway, I mean, there's no there's no reason to to do so. Um, I think that there, you know, there are, there are age questions around COPPA, but there's no, there's no actual sort of law that says you must, federal law that says you can't have social networks at schools. So it seems like Edmodo really benefits from bad, a bad law. Interesting. I don't know that much about Edmodo. Um, I, I knew Jeff O'Hare years ago, and um, I want to give it the benefit of the doubt. No, I like uh, Jeff. But I did and have I like, those conflicting ideas. I like Jeff, and I like Nick, the other co-founder. They are, you know, they are they are folks who are in education and, and built this tool, sort of recognizing recognizing the problems of the filters. But I also think too that you know I, I'm also wary when they've raised a lot of venture capital, and um, sort of how does that shape then what your what your product becomes. Right. Okay, which just probably does lead to us nicely to South by Southwest. Uh, <laughs> Indeed. And yeah, this was an interesting event. I, they sent a survey out afterwards asking how we felt. And I was pretty bold and forthright and even signed it with my own, didn't, didn't leave it anonymous. I thought you know, they may want to contact me. I, I felt so strongly. But I made some pretty serious complaints. Um, Part of which was just sort of tangibly organizational, organizational, you know, vendors as experts, um, lots of vendor sessions, really good sessions I knew of getting turned down. Um, 
you know, Karen Fassenpower on the committee, but also presenting three times, which just seemed kind of weird. Even if you, even if there was a good reason for it, you'd think you'd be very careful about that. Um, but sort of core bottom line for me was I expected South by Southwest to really r- represent independent thinking, and I didn't feel like it was. This, the analogy that I've been talking to folks about, because um, I had a very similar experience, was that the like, a, a grassroots movement helped put Barack Obama in into into office, um, right? People who were deeply moved by his message of hope, who went and voted, who'd never voted before. And I think after he was elected, the right wing said, we need a grassroots movement, let's build one. And I think that, the, you know, the, the Koch brothers created what, what a model that could be applied that looked like a grassroots movement, but was very much a top-down dictated, um, sort of dictated what the, what the, what the conversations would be um, around around the Tea Party, and and that's what that's what South by Southwest EDU felt to me was you know this once upon a time South by Southwest was a grassroots movement where geeks and music buffs would do sort of a lot of um, a lot of sessions where folks could sort of come together and and really talk about their craft, talk about um, talk about the the industry at a at a grassroots level, and the corporations have sort of swooped in. Um, it, it, it interactive. Uh, the, the the city right now is insane, um, but the EDU version felt like Pearson to me, saying, "We need a grassroots movement. Let's build one and let's impose our vision from the top down into what it looks like." I mean, to be fair, I don't think there are guys in a back room smoking cigars, you know, snickering about (laughs) taking over the movement, right? I mean, I don't think that's what this is about. I mean, I think these are well-meaning people who are just in large organizations who see an opportunity, who have the resources, who say this is what we can do. But ultimately, you know, are there guys in a back room with cigars snickering? (laughs) It's, you know, you know, these are, this, this is big money, this is really big money, and I and I think, you know, I had, uh, you know, Marjorie Scardinos was one of the keynoters, and I had this sort of weird moment standing on the sidewalk outside the convention center with David Wiley, who's just managed to sort of get Utah to adopt open source textbooks, um, and he and I sort of standing out there, actually having a really interesting conversations with some of the local teachers and the Occupy Austin folks, but just thinking about the, the you know, the, 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 the powerful folks that get to sort of um, stand and deliver their message and sort of run roughshod over what someone like David Wiley is, is doing uh, with, with, with textbooks in his state. Well, um, LeVar Burton was a keynote speaker. LeVar Burton and made I actually felt sorry I actually felt sorry for him. <laughs> it wasn't the best keynote I'd ever heard, but I actually really liked where he was coming from. Yeah. And uh, I I felt like he, he didn't realize that he wasn't actually speaking to an audience of teachers. Uh, now, there, granted, there were lots of teachers there, but um, I don't think he understood. And for those of us in the audience who were, who were thinking about this, um, it felt like uh, he was the message he was giving was almost 
completely counter to what was actually taking place. Well, and then I would add that his own message was was subverted by what he's doing now with Reading Rainbow. Um, and I thought, oh, yes. <laughs> I thought he was telling a really nice, a really beautiful, I mean, I would say I was really looking forward to seeing LeVar Burton because he's someone who's, you know, growing up, touched the, the things that he's done has have touched have touched my world sort of immensely. Um, the Root, the Roots miniseries on television, Star Trek: The Next Generation, Reading Rainbow. These are sort of important cultural moments for me, and I think, in many ways, sort of shaped shaped the way I look at the world. And so, I have a very special place in my heart for him. And I thought his what he was saying about um, about learning and about change and about sort of reading as reading and teaching and having a having a, a platform like television to make nonviolent social change was really um, was was really interesting and then and then it becomes an app and it seems to be that message of nonviolent social change is only afforded to those who have iPads and that that's sickening when you think of particularly if you think of reading rainbow which was always on public television, so you didn't have to have cable. And there was always this exhortation to go to the library, right? Go to your public library if you want to find these books. Um, and now all of that, all of that public openness lives behind a wall on a device that people can't afford. And that's, that to me is also part of this, these conversations that we're having, which is this world of, this world of sort of connected learning and transformative critical thinking and problem solving in kids is really not something that a lot of the systems want every kid to have. You know, I think that there's still, there's um, like, do we really, I mean, this is what you wrote about in yours. Like, are we really, uh, do we really want our kids to be critical thinkers? I mean, I, I would say yes, but I think there's plenty of, plenty of, you know, multinational corporations that don't want their workers to be critical thinkers and creative thinkers and problem solvers. I'm killing my, kicking myself right now because I don't remember the name of the guy who spoke the hour before your panel, who was very sparsely attended, but he did this session on, uh, they surveyed 500,000 students and was kind of giving the reports on this and how students are telling us that they just really want to matter. Yeah. And, and, um, and, and he talked about the fact that we use an incredible amount of language that is actually popular language that actually doesn't take place. We don't, do we really want to trust? We, we talk about trusting students, empowering them, uh, having them be in charge of their own learning. And his point was we say those words, but we don't actually do it. And that is really, it is an interesting moment because it's a moment, if we take that seriously, of really radically shifting what takes place in teaching and learning. And I, I, maybe it's just a scary moment. And we'll look back in 15 years and say, well, that was just a hard place to be because, you know, we were really going to have to shift what we did. Or maybe we'll look back and say, we just continued to use the language, but we didn't really empower students. Right. I mean, I think that it's, you know, that there is, there is going to have to be the emperor wears no clothes sort of moment, particularly when we see some of these initiatives and, and companies adopting that language that we know isn't actually, in their cases, you know, substantive or, or real. I mean, when, when Pearson gets to run a session on OER at 
at this event and then actually explains that you have to pay money to, to get a subscription to get access to OER. I mean, <laughs> we need to sort of stand well, that up. That seemed like that was the. <laughs> That felt like that was the quote of the century, right? Uh, um, now I, I couldn't tell if you were actually quoting from the session or you were being ironic, but the the, the information doesn't want to be free quote. Yeah, that's. She, I didn't. I mean, I, I I was retweeting someone who who said that on Twitter. I didn't go to the, her keynote, but yeah, but uh, Scardino did say information doesn't want to be free, and the the information that Pearson will make free is the stuff that's no good. So there wow. I was standing with David Wiley while this conversation was going on was a bit was a bit <laughs> outside weird. Outside Occupy yes. Pearson. Yes. Yes. Okay, so we've saved our final moment for talking about oh, I guess we have we have our news story still, but we saved our final uh blog post moment for the uh panel you did on EdTech reporting. So come on, tell us what really happened. <laughs> well, um I was on a panel uh with uh, Frank Catalano, who's a longtime journalist, um, technology, education technology journalist up in Seattle, uh, Lisa Wolf, who's a PR person, um, and Betsy Corcoran, who runs EdSurge, um, an, a weekly EdTech newsletter, although, although I guess they have a website now. Um, but, and so we were, you know, the, the title of it was um, EdTech Reporting Why It Sucks and How to Fix It. Um, and it was... It was very, for me, it was very interesting to sort of see the difference, particularly between um, sort of where, between uh, where Bets, what Betsy and I, how Betsy and I think about um, education technology. As I would say, you know, both of us really spend a lot of time talking about the, the, the entrepreneurs and the startups and thinking through some of these um, new tools that are, that are emerging. So there was a, it felt like a, a, a sort of a, a, a divide between uh, a divide between the, t the two of us. Well, were there fireworks? Were there sparks? Were there? Was there salty language? I, there was salty language. I was on. I did try <laughs> not to. Um, but you know, uh, one of the questions that that Frank asked was sort of if I could, you know, if we could, if if we could change the future of ed tech reporting and change the tenor, what would it look like? And I said, I wished we would spend less time talking about the business of education and more time talking about teaching and learning. Um, and and Betsy's response, and I actually didn't think about that before I opened my mouth. I mean, you know, Betsy writes about the business of education. Um, she it very, it very much is about sort of supporting this new. Um, Supporting and chronicling this new uh, world of, of of entrepreneurship around ed tech, um, and so to me that was um, th that that was sort of a, a moment of tension where I I felt as though I um, I said I'm actually not interested in <laughs> the the thing that you're that you're building. What is journalism? Journalism is the process of taking a press release and changing a few of the adjectives and verbs and maybe a rearranging the, the paragraphs and then just um, posting, a, posting it as your story. And there's a lot of journalism in technology reporting right now, and particularly in ed tech. Well, it felt like there's a deeper story there, right? I mean, the, uh, this is reflective of um, the web and, and the 
premium placed on getting stories out quickly? Yes, uh, and I think that that was that's one of the things that um, you know having having worked as a technology uh, a, a tech blogger for um, for about a year and, and a half before quitting to focus on on hack education. I mean, I was I was instructed to write five stories a day, um, and some days five important, interesting things don't happen, and you end up writing really in, insanely stupid stories about, you know, the, the fact that the Google Calendar button changed from, you know, blue, yellow, and red to sort of forest green, uh, you know, forest green, mauve, and purple. And so I think a lot of, there's a lot of really terrible writing right now on the, on the that's, that is quote news uh, online and not and maybe not just terrible writing but writing that doesn't go below the surface right writing based on the press release right that's not investigative right. that uh, is just putting more content out there this you know maybe this matches a little the um, David Weinberger in um, too big to know yes it's almost like we expected there to be deeper thought and yet the platform seems to be um, flooding us with more shallow flood, thought. Right. I know. I th- and I think that, and I think that when it comes to, I mean, when it when it comes to you know anything, I think that that's that's terrible. But but it, when it comes to education technology, and we should be having these difficult, nuanced um, conversations, the the amount of sort of superficiality. Um, coming out of, of tech, ed tech reporting, I think is really detrimental to stopping and saying, you know, why, why or why not something is a, is a good tool or a good practice or a good direction for us to move in. Okay, good. Well, we got through digital media and learning in South by Southwest without getting too heated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, I've always liked uh, Bill Fitzgerald, who's a classroom teacher. Uh, the fact that Bill created Funny Monkey, a company around using Drupal to help build tools for schools and education. Tell us about Julio, the, the their new project. Yeah, uh, Bill's done a lot of really interesting work in helping. I mean, I think that one of the challenges of open source technology um, is actually the the implementation piece. I mean, I think people would. And implementation and support piece. People would want to use open source, but sort of getting a server, getting things up and running is actually quite quite difficult. And so one of the things I like when 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 um, when Bill when Bill builds these Drupal tools is he actually makes the process of, of getting it getting it installed really easy. I mean, so he's sort of think not just thinking about the the, the tool in and of itself. And how it'll be used for school. So Julio is actually a a Drupal implementation that to help schools build build websites. So you could build um, you know blogs or calendars and things like that. But it's also sort of makes it easier for schools to actually get that up and running. So you can rely on an open source tool and not feel like you're in over your head because you're, you you don't know sort of how how to do so. Well, content. Drupal's a content management system. Right. Um, one of several, Mambo, Joomla, that, that have had some um, visibility in the last five years. But it feels like that story has kind of faded with cloud services. 
um, there's something about Julio that, that that promises to resurrect that as a more active option. Well, I I've actually seen there's been a number of um, you know the the Obama administration sort of went big in in Drupal. Um, they've got they moved quite a lot of their websites the the federal government websites over to Drupal, um, which I think is. Uh, an interesting indication of the, the, the way in which the tool um, works well for, for multiple authoring. Um, the community around Drupal is, a, is a, the community of developers who work around Drupal is a, is a really good community. Um, so I do think that there's a lot of interesting stuff happening with Drupal right now. In fact, I think uh, Bill's, Bill's DrupalCon is coming up and I think Bill's doing an education and conference there too. I'm good for him. Uh, so Apple unveils the newest iPad. Yes. Is this a story? Well, I, I mean, sure. There was so much, so much ink was spilled on it this week, Steve. <laughs> of course, it's a story. <laughs> no, um, I, I, I mean, I think that App, Apple has not. Um, Apple didn't unveil anything particularly interesting. They made some. The price, the price of the iPad two will fall. The new iPad has better um, a better Retina display. Um, it's it wasn't it didn't it didn't strike people as being a particularly interesting um, an interesting unveiling. Uh, Chris Lehman was there, um, so I, I told I warned him not to drink his Kool Aid. Um, I, I haven't I haven't seen him since though. Maybe he, maybe he didn't drink the Kool Aid and they're punishing him. So, but one actually one of the interesting things that Apple did announce. Um, which is good news for schools, is that they've, they've created an app that makes it easier to uh, sync up to 30 iOS devices at once. I mean, this is one of the things that always I found so irksome about schools acting as though iPads and even iPods, iPod touches, are so um, great for schools is that up until now, you've had to sync these devices one at a time, which is... I mean, if you have, you know, if you have a class, if you have 30 iPads or 30 iPod touches, like the manual syncing is just a ridiculous time waste. So it's a, it's a small gesture, but I think it's, um, it's, it's important for, for, for those folks who do have even, you know, even the iPods um, in their classes. Interesting. Um, not fair, but... Uh I immediately thought of Larry Cuban's post this week on, on the actual impact of iPads in the classroom, and <laughs> I know we'll be coming back to that. Yes. Uh, the MIT Android App Inventor. Anybody with a Google ID can now sign up. I didn't realize that. Yeah, this is a great tool, and it's actually a lot like Scratch. Um, once you get in there and start building, you'll you'll definitely see the 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 influence of the MIT Media Lab. Uh, Hal Abelson actually developed developed it for Google, um, and then Google shut it down and handed it back to Hal. Um, but, uh, so it's very much like the building, the building blocks that you see in Scratch. It's a great tool. The Chronicle of Higher Ed reports Google scaling back on its book scanning initiative. Yeah, well, you know, Google's being sued, of course, by the uh, by the, the, the publishers and the Authors Guild over the book scanning initiative. Um, and I don't know. I, um, this was sort of based on reports uh, from librarians at, at universities um, that had said that sort of the pace at which Google is scanning has declined. So, I mean, it raises the question is, you know, is Google backing away from its sort of 
what was its ma- what was this large scale effort to sort of digitize um, the world's books so that they could be searchable through through the web, or is this just sort of um, are are they rethinking rethinking how the how the process uh, how the process will work? But it's also I mean I think it's also a really good reminder that for these sorts of digitization efforts, should we be relying on a private company that has its own motivations as much as Google, you know, as much as we can say sort of Google is, you know, don't be evil. Um, you know, why, why is it, why is it that Google and not the government is, is undertaking this effort to sort of have a digital, to have a digital library? Hmm. Uh, the Department of Justice is apparently planning to sue Apple. They are indeed. And five of the largest publishers. Tell us about that. So uh, before before the advent of the iPad, um, and this is one of the, this is one of the reasons why Amazon became such a powerhouse is that um, you know Am- booksellers are able to sell a book at a um, beneath the recommended wholesale beneath the recommended price. So a- Amazon had started to sort of sell sell books um, sell ebooks too at a much much discounted price and the publishers were getting nervous um, and so as part of the deal to get publishers on board with iBooks which is the Apple digital bookstore which launched with the iPad um, it appears as though Apple and the five largest publishers um, participated in some price collusion, moving to what was what's called the agency model, which means that you actually aren't everyone agrees on the pricing, and Apple is not able to sell ebooks below that agreed upon pricing. So that's why ebooks are now sort of stuck at the nine ninety nine price point. And so the the uh, the Department of Justice is is um, you know, sees this as, as price collusion. Um, and so it, and it's Simon and Schuster, Hatchet, uh, Pearson or Penguin, which is Pearson, uh, Macmillan, and HarperCollins, which is owned by News Corp. So it's definitely. I think this is um, this is a, to me another indication of some of the chinks that we're going to be seeing in Apple's armor too, which is going to be interesting to watch. The Amazon, Google, um, Apple. Sorry, the chinks in Apple's armor. The, the, what's going to happen between eBooks and Google, Apple, and Amazon is really going to be important. It's going to be important for education too. Interesting. Um, University of Rhode Island is considering a new rule that will prohibit students from publishing sensitive material online. Is this a rule that the students would agree to as part of an honor code, or what yeah, does this mean? This would be part of the student handbook, um, and it's, I mean, it's a rule that was crafted initially to sort of help curb cyberbullying, particularly in relationship uh, in response to the suicide of Tyler Clementi at Rutgers, who had his roommate, his roommate posted um, photos and videos of him uh, online. Um, but I think that this. You know what? You know, as I as I say, my write-ups. So what what does constitute sensitive material? What what are students? You know, what 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 are students' access to free speech? I mean, it's something that free speech online and free speech on campus is another sort of um, the jury's still out on um, what what rights students have um, online. 
it's kind of a fascinating moment, right? I mean, these are students who are paying for adults who are paying for their own education. Right. Um, is this just sort of representative of this schizophrenic um, thinking we're having around control and agency? I think so too, and I, and I think it's recognizing the ways in which um, technology technology is sort of changing, sort of it's sort of changing the the reach of free speech. This is you know the um, and how you know what what changes now when when uh, quote uh, sort of a, a disrupt a sort of disruptions can you know be viewed by by millions of people. I mean, I don't, you know, on one hand, you could say sort of nothing changes. It's still free speech. But uh, universities seem to, you know, be concerned that everything changes. So we must sort of crack down on students again. Uh, um, Professor Kim Novak Morse from St. Louis University School of Law says that things are different than we think they are, maybe. Yeah, this was an interesting study. Do you remember this story? Yeah, this was this was interesting because I think there's a lot of concern I mean, you hear a lot of concern that students are now bringing their devices, laptops, cell phones into the classroom, and they're distracted all the time. <coughs> Excuse me. And her research showed that that the distraction wasn't the distraction sort of didn't look the way we've often talked about it. That in some ways, that the the students who scored the best on the LSATs. So these were law students that she studied. The students who scored the highest on LSATs were actually the ones who were off task most in class. Um, the ones who were off task most in class weren't necessarily the ones who scored at the end of class who got the worst grades. Um, and she found that there were actually things that, that the teacher did that would make students go off task more so than just the students went off task because of having a device in front of them. So she said whenever sort of whenever teachers would sort of talk about the same subject for four for four or more minutes, that students would drift away. And so it seems to actually have a lot more to do with how you teach and students' attention levels than than actually the device itself being being to blame. This was an interesting story because it uh, I had to ask myself the question. This is a good nuanced. Um, the kind of thing we, sh I think, want to be talking about. Is she the first one to really talk about this? I, I don't recall seeing this particular angle before. I haven't recalled seeing this angle before either. I mean, usually you you get the... I mean, the, I've, I've, there's been a lot of conversation too lately, particularly in higher ed, about, like, is the lecture a good thing or a bad thing? How do we get rid of the lecture? What's, um, you know, students aren't learning from lectures. And I think that, I think that... It does seem as though higher ed is starting to interrogate the way in which um, its classes work, the way in which its professors um, teach. But this one was interesting because it, it did seem to offer a slightly different take on the fact that lectures are boring, so students are checking Facebook. It seems, I mean, it was a lot more complicated. And the outcomes of whether students were checking Facebook, it wasn't as though checking Facebook then de facto means you're this, you know, you're failing the class. You know, I just have to laugh. I keep my laptop open at a conference in a lecture environment, and I do exactly that. Yeah. If you're not keeping my attention, I'm going to go do something I care about. And it, it may not be Facebook. It may actually be related to the topic. Right. It's just that you've lost me for that period of time, and I want to go do something that makes my time worth 
worthwhile. Well, I think that that's an important thing to, to think about too, is that, you know, again, like distraction, being distracted by technology is all lumped together at, as the looking at Facebook. And I think that people could say things that are, you know, um, really interesting that make you take your brain down a sort of perpendicular path. That's not that actually you're learning, you know, you're learning more than if you just sort of sat there uh, with sort of rapt attention to the to the to the presentation that that the professor is giving. Really good stuff. Okay, uh, I also really like the story on the DC data dry, dive. Uh, what was happening there? Yeah, the DC data dive. This is a this is to me. Um, you know, we've we've talked about startup weekends and different sorts of hackathons. The DC data dive is a really I think imp- important move um, in a way of the sort of instead of having hackathons that sort of build companies that that, that brings together people who are really skilled developers and nonprofits that have a particular problem and data sets that are like open data sets and sort of how so how can we how can we build a tool that makes things better for a particular nonprofit or a particular organization or a particular community but um, the so what happened with the DC Data Dive is a, is a group came together, and I think one of them works for the U.S. Census, one of them for the Department of Ed, um, and I can't remember where the other developer was from. And they built a tool, they built a map, an interactive map for the DC Action for Children. They took a bunch of publicly available data and made a map so you can sort of see, you can mouse over the different neighborhoods in DC and see, um, see income levels see the number of libraries, the number of police stations that these different neighborhoods have. Brilliant. I love it. Um, I've been reading Roger Shank, a new book by Roger Shank. Do you know him? I don't. Uh-uh. And it's sort of a cognitive scientist, um, really interesting guy, and he talks about it talks a lot about the dysfunctionalities of universities. I think you'd really like that. Um, but he also talks about the kind of learning that takes place when you do this kind of a dive. Yeah. Um, and in particular, there was a uh, uh, a media executive who went to teach at a university and invited Roger to come see his class. And what he did was he actually had his students for a whole day be the newsroom. From the beginning of the day to the end of the day, they actually produced the stories, produced the broadcast. They did it a half hour before the, the regular TV broadcast, and then they compared their end results with the actual national broadcast. Interesting. And it was, I mean, oh, I thought it was a lovely idea. And he said, he said in the book, he said, I told this guy, you know, I'm really sorry that you're not going to be here much longer. And the guy said, no, I plan to teach forever. And he said, no, you don't understand. This model's not going to work. They're not going to keep you around um, because this kind of deep dive activity is not really a part of the structure of school. Right. This DC Action for Children project seems like you, you know, this is what, what an open opening of a door to these kinds of activities. And yet, again, hard to see most schools or educational institutions taking advantage of this kind of opportunity. Yeah, it's one of the things that, I mean, it's one of the things that I'm really hopeful for around, um, sort of around things like Code for America and open data and, and projects that are sort of helping, you know, helping build community and enable community and not, not just sort of come in with the, with the solution and also not just have nonprofits 
um, dump their problems off on, on coders and say, you know, I'll be back on Sunday to pick up the thing you built me. But, you know, to actually work together, work together to sort of solve these local problems, I think is really powerful. So, uh, is education element, who is education elements? I don't know much about this. I don't know much about this startup. Um, other than the fact that they they just raised uh, six million dollars this week, they're a blended learning company. They ha- they ha- they offer a um, a cloud based system to help uh, K through twelve schools handle uh, blended learning opportunities. But um, which I think blended learning is becoming sort of a, a buzzword, particularly um, I hear it a lot around sort of education reformers talking about blended learning. I don't really know much about this company at all. Except for investors seem to think they're onto a, a big thing. Well, six million dollars isn't too far from the fifteen million we were talking about with Edmodo, right? Um, and then Che get twenty five million. I mean, and again, very interesting to think about the, um, you know, kind of uh, what you end up having to do to pay back investors with that kind of investment. Um, the William Johnson recommended reading link here confessions of a bad teacher mm-hmm. pretty stunning i think this i mean this is a really really important read um that this was this was one of this was a uh, you know some of this response to the the new york city teacher data reports with this notion now that we can based on standardized tests we can come in and say these are the good teachers these are the bad teachers and this this look into someone who's been labeled bad teacher, a look into his his world, his classroom world, I thought was really interesting. Yeah, well worth the read. Audrey, we went over our time, but I think I <laughs> given these two big conferences and, and the brilliance of your um, scratch interviews, it would have been hard to imagine containing ourselves to an hour. Thank you so much. Really interesting thinking this week. Thank you, Steve.